Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a special chat room, so Ravinder, welcome everybody to your chat room. Yes, welcome everyone. Do come join us uh, in the chat room where the conversation is even more enlightening than the show. Actually, I don't know about that, but it's a lot of fun. So do come join us at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. I don't know about that either, but it is a great show. I was chat being room. cheeky. In our spotlight this week, we turn our attention to manipulation. Is that what you were doing to me, manipulating me? Never. Now, I posted a quote on Facebook not long ago from one of my new favorite books, Lexicon, a novel by Max Berry. Here's the quote. The key to the web is it's interactive. That's the difference. Online, someone visits your site. You can have a little poll there. It says, hey, what do you think about the tax cuts? And people click and segment themselves. First advantage right there. You're not just proselytizing, speaking into the void. You're getting data back. But here's the really clever part. Your site isn't static. It's dynamically generated. Do you know what that means? It means the site looks different to different people. Let's say you chose the poll option that said you're in favor of tax cuts. Well, there's a cookie on your machine now, and when you look at the site again, the articles are about how the government is wasting your money. The site is dynamically selecting content based on what you want. I mean, not always what you want, sometimes what will piss you off. What will engage your attention and reinforce your beliefs make you trust the site? And if you said you were against tax cuts... We'll show you stories of Republicans blocking social programs or whatever. It works every which way. Your site is made of mirrors reflecting everyone's thoughts back at them. That's pretty great. And we haven't even started talking about keywords. This is just the beginning. Another major advantage, people who use a site like this tend to ramp up their dependence on it. Suddenly, all those other news sources, the ones that aren't framing every story in terms of the user's core beliefs, they start to seem confusing and strange. They start to seem biased, actually, which is kind of funny. So now you've got a user who not only trusts you, you're his major source of information on what's happening in the world. Boom. You own the guy. You can tell him whatever you like, and no one's contradicting you. Close quote. I'm repeatedly struck by the sheer number of people who don't seem to care who is collecting what information about them and anyone else. I often hear things like, I don't care, I have nothing to hide. Like, that's the point of all the data mining. Duh. Most of the data mining is more about guiding folks than about finding them in some nefarious or criminal activity. Remember the words of the so-called father of modern propaganda, Edward Bernays? In his words, and I quote, 
Ours must be a leadership democracy administered by the intelligent minority who know how to regiment and guide the masses. The common interests very largely elude public opinion entirely and can be managed only by a specialized class whose personal interests reach beyond the locality. If we understand the mechanism and motives of the group mind, it is now possible to control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing it. Close quote. Get a clue, folks. In today's Orwellian world, the agenda is all about owning you, your thoughts, and therefore your behavior. If we allow this, sheeple we are, and sheeple we will remain. Thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, we are definitely sheeple, and the only way out of it is to pay attention. You know, information is power. In this instance, it's the only way that, yeah... It's the only way that you can become yourself, because otherwise you're being manipulated. That is just 100%. So Sometimes you have to play games with the manipulators. You know, that's what I, I told you about. <laughs> you know, Facebook, hey, I, I literally have to go out of my way to see things that they aren't showing me on my wall in order to get out of the trend that they're trying to put me into. All right, anyway. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making the show successful. Last week we were traveling, so we replayed one of my favorite shows, The Meaning of Life with Dr. J. Garfield. Elizabeth wrote, I do so love your show, and Professor Garfield is amazing. I agree with you, Elizabeth. Now, during our last live show, our guest was Georgina Cannon, and we discussed reincarnation. We received an avalanche of mail from the show. Janet wrote, Eldon Taylor, I just love your direct approach. It reminds me of the old Dragnet TV series. Like Sergeant Friday, you want the facts. Friday used to say, all we want are the facts, just the facts, ma'am. That seems to me to be exactly what you are after in your interviews, and I love it. Well, I'm glad you do, Janet. Indeed, maybe you have been reading some of my posts on Facebook. I invite you all to join me there. This past week, in answer to a post regarding the reincarnation study I covered in the spotlight and blogged about two weeks ago, one commenter followed up on Dr. Moody's suggestion to remove NDEs from science and deal with them philosophically by suggesting a new branch of philosophy. I responded this way, quote, I believe we already have more than an adequate philosophical foundation to evaluate metaphysical propositions, and there certainly is a rich heritage of just that. Instead of philosophy, what we need more of is facts, good old-fashioned facts, and then we can apply logic to those facts to reach our conclusions. For example, the facts in this study clearly insist that negative NDEs occur. All we can therefore rightly insist upon is that whatever an NDE might be, it includes negative experiences. All right, today there seems to be a fixation on, tell me what I want to hear. I think of that as the modern language pablum used to make money and build fame. So there are gurus on every street corner intent on telling you something that makes you feel better. Well, nonsense may make you feel better in the short run, but it doesn't get you closer to the meaning and purpose of life. So when someone, as we heard from Dr. Cannon, tells us that even the worst among us, Hitler, for example, 
simply made a deal on the other side to be a bad guy during their incarnation so we could learn forgiveness and then later acknowledges the reality of confused spirits and negative NDEs and the hellish afterlife experiences, they have unwittingly contradicted themselves. Pay attention. For if we're all good guys, then there is no reason for fearful or persecutory experiences during NDEs, such as reported by those in the 49% of cardiac arrest patients cited in the study I discussed during our last live show. So, when the facts and good old logic are applied, either everyone is a good guy, and therefore all is light and love, or some are not so good for reasons other than upholding their deal from the other side, and that's why the darker experiences. My thoughts on the matter anyway, so I agree, Janet. First, we want the facts. Let's use some logic to flesh out those facts, and when they contradict one another, Let's look again. Sharon wrote, perhaps there are, there are those so evolved that they have this sort of dastardly profile agreement as referenced, but I highly doubt it. I know this concept was presented in the book, The Nine Faces of Christ, but the sea of humanity is far too unconscious for this to be truth in my book. More likely, these souls are extremely out of alignment with their spirit or goodness. Heard tell that the word sin derives from the meaning off the mark. I really like that interpretation when I screw something up, small things, as it allows me to forgive myself, learn, and realign with love. Adolf seems to have been so off the mark that he was out of the ballpark. Yikes, what an excruciating life review he must have had. Holly commented, Or there really is a place called hell, just like the Bible says, and maybe Adolf is there. No life review needed. Maybe the people that have a hellish NDE experience it, for a reason we can't fully understand. It is extremely hard for me to reconcile God the Father and God the Punisher because I want to believe that everyone gets to go to heaven. But the truth is, maybe they don't. Maybe when you know you're not supposed to kill and you do anyway, barring a mental issue humanity may not be aware of or some other excusable reasons that may cause the behavior, this is where God's mercy would come into play. Well, then you really do go to hell. Or, on a smaller scale, consistently turning away from your purpose, missing your marker, so to speak, for no other reason than you just want to. If hell doesn't really exist, and neither do demons, I have read and seen enough to believe that they do. Therefore, they must come from somewhere. Now, Robin wrote, the show with Georgina Cannon was a learn something new. Wow. Jane commented, as Miss Cannon said, people in undeveloped countries are also blessed. It's how you live, not your circumstances. Richard wrote, I have a suspicion that many poorly formed philosophies are like luxuries of the middle class. It is easy to form and hold a belief that will never face a veracity test. Amen, Richard. All right, moving on. Now, during our last live show, Ravinder announced the 13th anniversary of Progressive Awareness Research, the parent company of our Intertalk technology, and she shared her personal story in the spectacular sales event we have going on to celebrate our birthday. She began the story by telling how some 30 years ago I had a choice, create Progressive Awareness or buy the car of my dreams, the new Cadillac Eldorado Barretts. I deferred the car, and, well, the rest is history. Bob wrote, Congratulations, Eldon. I know you hear this often, but your recordings changed my life. Thanks for not getting the Cadillac. Steve wrote, 
I am one. Yeah, it's nice. I like that. I like that. I am one of your many customers. My hearty congratulations to you for having created such an outstanding system. When you created InterTalk with Progressive Awareness Research, you made magic happen. One gets the title that is recommended to one to either overcome a problem or to improve on something, and magic happens. How often I mention the system to people. A good amount of them have written down the name of the company, the website address, and the city where the company is located. And if I see any people two or three months later, they tell me, that system really works. I answer, no kidding. My best wishes to you and Ravinder. Well, thank you, Steve. That's really nice. Stacy wrote, thanks for the email deal. Your products have changed my life. Love and thanks, Eldon, and all of you at Progressive Research. Uh, Ravinder, share with us very quickly what the deal is that Stacy, Steve, and, and others are writing about. Um, and, and how much longer the offer will be valid? Well, it is 30 years, not 13. You actually misspoke a little bit earlier. Did it's, I say 13? You did. It's oh, 30 uh, years, and that's one heck of an achievement for any business these days. Um, so, yes, we are offering as part of, you know, to have everyone join us in this celebration is the buy three, get three free. We often have the special of buy four, get one free. Right now we have buy three, get three free, and people are coming in. They're buying programs for themselves. They're picking up presents for the holiday season. You know, they're padding out their libraries. They're taking care of friends and family. It is really cool. So all you need to do is go to the mindmint.com. Actually, we have a link for it on the front page of eldentaylor.com, so you can just click on it right there. Um, that will take you directly to the mindmint.com. Place your order. Just put 30 years in the comments box at the end of the order and we will recalculate it specially for you. So. And that will be done before you ever charge your credit card. Or That's anything. right. Okay, cool. That's great. All right. Angela wrote, I am a Brit living in Australia and I bought several of your Intertalk CDs. I scoured the internet for information on subliminal products before coming across your wonderful website. I was, it was so informative and factual numerous products and titles that I knew I had to purchase from you and I haven't been disappointed. I bought for my children and me and played the Intertalk CDs in all of our bedrooms all night. I also have the Brain Entrainment DVDs. The results have been nothing short of amazing. The children have improved in school. I have gained confidence in my ability to start a business. And last but not least, my hair has stopped falling out. This last one really astounded me as my hair had started thinning since puberty and I had never regained the thickness I had when I was a young girl. It took about four to five months before I noticed that my hair loss was reducing and I hadn't started doing anything, exercise or diet. To be honest, I didn't think your Freedom from Hair Loss CD would work, so it goes to show that it doesn't matter what your conscious mind thinks as long as you listen to the CD. Thank you for offering your wonderful products to the world. I intend to make further purchases, and I recommend you to everybody I know. It's a wonderful letter. Thank you, Angela, for your feedback, and keep up the great progress. I love the results we get from the customers, and I know you do as well, Rabinder. Part of the payday, isn't it? Most certainly. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. Now to this week's show, and I've been really looking forward to this one, Heaven and Hell Unveiled. Okay, as you know, during our last live show, we discussed new research regarding NDEs. Briefly, this study involving more than 2,000 cardiac arrest cases from 15 hospitals revealed that 46% experienced a broad range of mental recollections in relation to death that were not compatible 
with the commonly used term of NDEs. No white light, no great tunnels. These included fearful and persecutory experiences. All right, only 9% had experiences compatible with NDEs. That's quite a contrast. Now, this is truly a benchmark study and one that suggests, contrary to what most so-called NDE experts want to admit, that there is more than love and light awaiting some of us. The spotlight of my blog on the same initiated a conversation on Facebook page, on my Facebook page, that led to me responding to one inquiry this way. It seems that if a NDE is evidence of an afterlife, it stands to reason that where one goes and what they experience is part of the evidence. As such, a negative NDE suggests there is a form of hell, and most do not want to accept that. If we disqualify the negative experience as evidence, then we must also disqualify the positive, and therefore a NDE proves nothing. It is only a special brain activity. So logically speaking, we either incorporate a hell of sorts into our metaphysics, or we abandon the NDE as evidence. So is there a hell, or is this a product of our minds, and when someone experiences an NDE, that is hellish in nature, is it just the fears in a dying brain that generate this nightmare? Could Dr. Kevin Nelson be correct? Are NDEs really rem in nature, rapid eye movement that accompanies dream states? Nelson's peer-reviewed research and his articles strongly suggest that NDEs are nothing more than REM states. Enter today's guest, Professor Stafford Betty, earned his Ph.D. from Fordham University, where he specialized in Asian religious thought and Sanskrit. He was born into a Catholic family in Mobile, Alabama, the son of an economics professor teaching at the local Jesuit college. He was naturally attracted to religion from an early age. After a tour in Vietnam as a U.S. Army engineer officer, he enrolled in a theology program at Fordham University in New York City. For his Ph.D. dissertation, he translated from Sanskrit a 16th century Hindu Vedanta text. From there, he took a job at California State University in Bakersfield, where he has taught now for over three decades. Today, he is one of the world's most acclaimed experts on the afterlife. He has published eight books, including two novels and dozens of articles, some in top-tier philosophy journals. He writes a blog for the Huffington Post and White Crow Books. I follow his White Crow Books blog. It's a great blog. We will be discussing two of his books today, Heaven and Hell Unveiled, Updates from the World of Spirit, and Toward the Light, Religion in the Afterlife. So, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Stafford Betty. Hello, Eldon. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Good to have you, sir. You know, we like to get at least three objectives accomplished with our guest. Who is the okay. messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to begin with, please tell us a little more about your background. I mean, you were raised Catholic, and I assume you right. attended the Jesuit high school. Um, so what was that like for you? I mean, were you popular, involved in sports? Uh, what was your home life like? I mean, did you believe in a vengeful God? And, and or how did you respond to that notion? You know, fill us Boy, in. That's a lot of questions. Uh, yeah, I was a very devout uh, Catholic. Uh, I took to religion. Um, I believed my teachers when they told me what Catholic dogma uh, asserted. I had no reason to doubt them. They seemed like wise and loving people. 
And uh, I just bought into the system without really challenging it uh, until my late teen years. Then I began to think through some of the some of the inconsistencies, some of the what seemed eventually absurdities, particularly regarding hell and God's uh, apparent love for those people he sends to hell for eternity. That just didn't quite square. Um, but before I get there, I was I was a kid who um, who was kind of tall and gawky and uh, and not not at all popular. Always had a dear friend or two who made life rather bearable and very loving parents and a wonderful family to come from. So I I took away from all of that a fairly strong uh, self-image, which has carried me through a lot of adversity um, since uh, I've been an adult and have developed all these interests in things that um, academics are not supposed to take seriously. (laughs) So um, it's it's been a very rich and uh, wonderful life, but it has been hard at points. And and uh, I have known what it means to be professionally isolated and consider myself pretty much in that, uh, in that barrel right now. But I have friends off the university and enjoy playing golf um, once a week and, uh, and have a wonderful wife and five wonderful kids. And, you know, I just have no complaints. But I have had very hard times uh, uh, a time or two uh, uh, relating to exclusion from the set where I should belong. Anyway, uh, no complaints, though, Eldon. That's a heavy-duty price to pay, you know, standing for what you believe and stepping yeah. up. And, 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 and I, you know, uh, when you look at it in 2020 hindsight, because, I mean, academics uh, and tenor, they dictate a certain kind of behavior. There's a paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know all about that. I'm oh, yeah. That road. I sure do. Uh, you know, is, is it worth it to you? I mean, when, I mean, absolutely. Say, nothing to complain, but is it worth it to stand there and be yeah. what Reuben, he who stands alone? Right. No, it is totally worth it. I I don't envy any of my conventional peers uh, who have succeeded in isolating me, literally, physically isolating me by sending me off to one of the edges of the campus. Uh, it was hard to get used to at first, but I have the I have. I really have come into my own ever since I've been in isolation over the last 10 years. I've been more productive than ever before and have had a more satisfying career uh, as an academic and as just a human being by far than I had the previous uh, decades in my uh, professional career. Your student ratings are really high. You ought to throw that in. Uh, What's that? your student ratings are really high. Your students really they, like what you do. They they really do, uh, and there's no doubt about that. And uh, uh, my Meaning of Death course uh, is one of the most popular courses on the campus, uh, and I absolutely love to teach this course. It's in this course, during the second half of the course, that we look into all of the afterlife evidence. We first of all look at what the religions of the world say about the afterlife, and then we then we get down to brass tacks and try to discover what really is happening in the afterlife, and that's where research comes in, and um, that's what I'm good at, and that's what my books uh, uh, that's what my books reflect. A lot of research. That's a fact, and I, and I want to get into that quite deeply today. But in sure. about one minute before we have a break, that's going to kick us okay. out. What on earth motivated you to research the afterlife? You know that's a wonderful question, Eldon, and uh, I think it I think it goes way back to when I was just a little tyke. Um, 
uh, go back to St. Mary's being taught by the Sisters of Mercy. I think that they regarded this little uh, Catholic school uh, in Mobile, Alabama, as kind of a missionary <laughs> um, uh, assignment. But they taught me uh, that that life in this world was very short compared to the life that follows death. And that struck me as profoundly true, and it strikes me as profoundly true to this very moment. I've never doubted that. And so I had the sense that uh, that what followed this life was simply more important, ultimately, than this life. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't take this life extremely seriously. As a matter of fact, we need to in order to enhance our delight, our pleasure, uh, the whole experience of the world to come. But the world to come lasts a lot longer, and it goes farther. And hopefully it takes you all the way. When we come back, I'm going to ask you how important it is to face death. Uh, Some would say that that's critically important before you even recognize what you're living for. We're speaking with Professor Stafford Betty about life after death and his book, Heaven and Hell Unveiled. You can learn more about him and his work by visiting whitecrowbooks.com forward slash Stafford Betty. Or just Google him and you will find his Huff blog, his EDU link, and more. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With Intertalk, Elden Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. Intertalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.intertalk.com to find your talent today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elden Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Professor Stafford Betty about life after death and his book, Heaven and Hell Unveiled. Now, we ask our guests for up to three songs, songs that have some special significance to them. Music does elicit memories, often calling on some deeply emotional feelings, and in many ways, our favorite music can say a lot about who we are. So now we just played I'd Be a Legend in My Time, sung by Roy Orbison. Professor, why is this one special to you, and how does it tell us about whom you are? <laughs> uh, first of all, it was one of my favorite uh, songs when I was um, going through my rock and roll stage back uh, in the 50s. Um, I, I remembered that song. It, it struck me, even at the time, um, if uh, loneliness, uh, how does it go? Um, in any way, a person who is lonely uh, can, can, can suffer quite a bit. And um, even back then, I must have had some premonition that I would be different from so many other people around me. I was certainly different from all the other kids uh, growing up in Mobile. Uh, and, uh, and I continue to be different uh, all of my life and continue to be even to the point. Uh, and so I relate to that song. At 16, so, I should tell you that I outgrew that kind of music and became a great lover of classical music and remained that way ever since. But I've never forgotten that song and love it very much. I'm glad you played it. Well, you know, I gotta, I'll got i admit something here now. I love classical music, but I have never outgrown the rock and roll <laughs> and the Roy Orbison days. So uh, yeah. I happen to like that one, too. But you, yeah. you relate to it. So, you mean, the loneliness aspect of your life yeah. is something you've had to deal with because of the isolation. That's exactly right. Uh, the, the professional isolation, I should make right. that clear. I haven't been isolated yeah. in any other way. Yeah. But that has uh, that has that has felt uh, that that stings at times. Uh, even now and then, I lose sleep over it when I think of the unfairness of it all. But <laughs> that's just life. It is, and it's also unfortunate aspect of life because it's very narrow-minded of the so-called yeah. um, academic community, which are supposed to be involved in science and philosophy and. Uh, you know, the Ph.D. behind most people's names still stands yeah. for philosophy doctor. And how do, right. you, how do you pass on the notion of the importance of an afterlife? So let's, let's go where we were to, okay. prior to the break. You know, Tolstoy's story of Ivan Illich, uh, yeah. what is, I think it's called, uh, is everybody, every day it's called the, death of, the real thing. The death of Ivan Illich. Yeah, yeah the that, that's what it is. Thanks. Yeah, I teach uh, that in my in my death course every you time. You do well. You know, oh, in yeah. that course, you, I, I mean, in his uh, in his story, we have this depersonalization of death, and that's the way most mm -hmm. people seem to to deal with death until they're right there, like right. Ivan is, and it's yep. suddenly, wait a minute, not me. Wait, I, you know. How important is it, do you think, for each of us as human beings to stop? and look at death and what death really means on a personal level in order for us to fully live. It's of the first importance, I believe. Um, you know, many people who regard themselves as well-educated and even enlightened um, look at uh, the findings of neuroscience, at least the findings that they read about in the New York Times and places like that, mm -hmm. and they, they're, they're just done in by the, the perspective that they read about. Uh, they have read that the activity of the brain produces consciousness and that when the brain dies, we do too. End of story. Um, 
uh, people who are victimized by this kind of thinking tell themselves they better get used to the prospect of becoming nothing and not fret over it. So they try not to think about what death means, their own death, their children's death, and enjoy the present and only world as much as they can. But as the notable cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker, who wrote a classic book, The Denial of Death, he himself was a non-believer. As he reminds us, at some point we've got to look death full in the face. And when we do, quoting William James, the skull will grin in at the banquet. And we will experience, according to Becker, not only fear, but abject terror. And I think that um, there's a great truth in what Becker is telling us. Um, So I rest my case. It's of enormous importance that we look at this and then carry on from there. Hopefully, what that terror will spur us to do is to begin to look at the evidence that I will be sharing with your audience. There's a heck of a lot of it out there, and all one has to do is to begin to read the right kinds of books to discover it. And then all of a sudden, life will become a lot, not only more bearable, but just more meaningful. Some of those books involve neuroscience, so you know I don't yeah. want <clears throat> I don't want that one to go by like everybody thinks. Um, the latest right. fMRI research does not show yep. us that there is uh, areas of the brain that are just literally wired for religious experience. Period. Stimulate yep. them. True. Deep religious experience. That's yep. question begging in and of itself. But okay, yep. I, I'm not. We won't go that way. Uh, you don't want to. <laughs> no, I'm prepared to if you want to go that way. There are oh. certainly ways to look around that and get around that uh, that so-called finding. Yeah, well, you know, there's a way to get around everything. I mean, the the yeah. fact of the matter is, as you know, Professor, we have a whole series of what we call psychological fallacies, and yeah. so we we can label anything a fallacy. Uh, right. And when when the time comes that we learn that well maybe that isn't such a fallacy then we we change our labels, but I you know that's problem with the paradigm system as it works. But at any rate, let's let's do this. You heard the setup piece. Yep. What do you think of negative NDEs? What do you think um, <clears throat> that research suggests? Well, there's no question but that negative NDEs occur. Uh, it's futile to, to deny that. They are very much in the minority, fortunately, but they are there, and some of them are truly horrendous. Most of them According are just... According to this study, 49% of over 2,000 patients in 15 different hospitals actually had a, a negative, a, non, a non-typical NDE. Um, they were dark or fearful or persecutory or something of that nature, where only 9%... Had the other. This this was the Aware study. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Sam Parnia of the State University of New yeah, York. Okay, I, at Stony right. Brook. That was his new study. Okay, I did not know that he came up with those statistics, and they, I must say, are very surprising to me. I think what he means by that 49% uh, is that the NDEs are less than positive. Uh, a researcher named Barbara Romer uh, wrote a book uh, about those so-called less than positive NDEs. Uh-huh. And um, and very few of them are truly negative in any full horrifying sense, but they're just not the wonderful kind that uh, that had become more prominently um, 
researched by people like Kenneth Ring and Raymond Moody and the likes, who nice. gave us the sense that, uh, you know, if you had an NDE, you were among the most fortunate of human beings, and right. they were invariably positive. Right. So, so I, I don't know where plenty of got that because I can assuage some of my anxiety. Not forty nine percent of us are going to hell then, right? No, not <laughs> at all. Um, but I, I think it's I think it is logical to think that forty nine percent of us would not have these glorious, profoundly positive uh, experiences. It seems to me that forty nine percent represents uh, a kind of midpoint, and I think that, that the midpoint of human nature is to be rather not too good and not too bad. So it's not surprising to me that that would be the outcome. As a matter of fact, it's rather reassuring. Uh, it fits my sense of what human beings really are. But it is surprising to me that I had not read that and not heard that. Um, I guess I've been uh, sold a bill of goods by the optimists out there who do their research. It is amazing that they have done such good research, apparently, and not come up with the same statistics that Parnia came up with. I don't know how to... I don't know how to fix that. Yeah, I, 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 I sometimes, honestly, uh, Professor, believe that, you know, people jump on a bandwagon, there's a buck to be made, and they run out there yeah. and they, they tell stories. And, uh, you know, some of those stories we find out just simply are not true. There's a very yeah. popular writer out there this minute yeah. that, um, you know, is telling what happened and his books are hitting the New York Times and uh, anyone that Googles him will discover that the stories he's telling, according to his own physicians, uh, right. uh, they're just not true. I yeah, you're talking about Evan Alexander. Yeah, I was no, I, I know. I, mention his I, don't, name, but okay. I don't think, I think it would be a mistake to think that uh, his near-death experience is at all normative. It never struck me as normative at all. Um, I don't question uh, the details that he uh, provides in his book, not in the least. That was his experience, but I don't think it's typical. Okay. All right, let me ask you this. Nancy Evans Bush, author of The Dancing Past the Dark, you probably know her, has examined and written about distressing near-death experiences, including some that involve descriptions of something like hell. And she insists in her words, quote, some are hot, some are cold, some are like deserts, some are like swamps, some are too mm -hmm. bright in terms of fire, and some are full of wet, slimy, nasty stuff. Right. I've heard descriptions of wells with slimy creatures in them, but I've also heard barren waste with nothing, close quote. Mm -hmm. According to your work, you know, first, I guess, we need to get this on the table. Is there such a thing as hell? And I mean yeah. by that, a place, yeah. not just a state of right. mind. Right. And if so... What is it like? Does it fit any in all of these descriptions? I mean, that sounds like a mind state. Yeah. Uh, I uh, first of all, there there certainly are. There is a place, or there are places called hell. Um, I I am not going to come at this from a near death experience because that's not my primary expertise. My mm -hmm. primary expertise is what spirits have been telling us about the afterlife through reputable mediums. Um, and they certainly do uh, speak of of hell. They say that there are hellish regions, not just one, but many regions in the astral, and large populations uh, make their home there. Sometimes they refer to these places as the shadowlands because so often they uh, are they involve landscapes that vary from sordid city neighborhoods to parched gray scrubland to dark, lifeless deserts. Um, 
all the variety that you mentioned uh, has been cited. The vivid clarity of higher realms in the afterlife is missing. Instead, there's, uh, there tends to be a dull overcast, uh, temporarily lost or confused or stubbornly unrepentant souls populate these regions. Disturbing noises and howls are sometimes mentioned. Uh, Francis Banks, uh, communicating in 1965 through the English medium Helen Greaves, one of my favorite accounts, gives us a horrifying picture of a Nazi leader, not Hitler, who committed suicide when Germany fell. The man, who's now remorseful and eager to pull himself out of his personal hell, quote, was a terrible and pathetic sight. He has sores and scars and sightless eyes, all of which he imposed on his astral body by the power of his subconscious mind. He wasn't literally blind, but he willed himself to be. Prayed for and nursed by compassionate spirit nuns, he finally found the strength to begin the slow, very slow process of recovery. So that's that's one way to look at hell. I concur with what you just said. Uh, there are many varieties of it, um, and it really depends on how you lock yourself into a particular worldview. That's going to be your experience of hell. But it is experienced as a very real, physical sort of a place. And but you will not be alone. We there will be plenty of other. If we were to draw a map, we're not going to have, you know, um, yeah. some kind of, well, on this end is heaven and on this end is hell. Yeah, uh, right. Per se. Okay. So now, but let me ask you this. I mean, I've got 40 questions going through my mind just on the basis okay. of what you said. But, you know, when sure. you use a medium... Uh, in your work, you know, uh, do you have any conflicting feelings about that? I mean, in Leviticus, we're told, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. Uh, right. And, you know, we read in Isaiah, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? I could go on. I'm looking here real yeah. quick like it's... Absolutely. The, you know, the notes in the Bible. Uh, yeah. So... With your background, when you're dealing with a medium, do you, do you ever feel uncomfortable or like you're opening a door or like, you know, I mean, some of them use things like Ouija boards and, right. you know, uh, where are you there? Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> these are these are very legitimate concerns that uh, you have, Eldon, and that I have as well. Um, there are a number of reasons that uh, that I take mediums seriously. But they have to t they have to pass a test before I'm going to. For example, um, there has to be there has to be a first-rate medium has to marvel at what at what comes through her, usually or her. Often, ideas or points of view totally alien to them turn up. They're shocked by what somebody is saying through them. It's not coming from their mind. Uh, often, information comes through them that they had no way of knowing. This information, they claim, doesn't come from theological surmise or philosophical argument, but from spirits directly telling us about the world they now call home. So uh, a good medium is going to be really surprised by the, uh, by the accounts that reach earth through him or her. That's one of the tests. Um, I should tell you that, that many uh, mediums, the very best of them, as a matter of fact, um, uh, receive complaints from the spirits who are using them uh, and complain that their subconscious mind 
and their own prejudices sometimes get in the way of the message that the Spirit is trying to bring through them. When a medium does that, I really take note because it seems rather odd that a medium, a legitimate medium, would be trying to undermine her own message. So it strikes me as a profoundly honest moment that she admits that her subconscious mind sometimes can get in the way and can contaminate the message that she wants to come through her from the other side, from the spirit who is working through her. So, yeah, there is always the problem of uh, what I call uh, coloring or contamination of the message from the other side coming through. It's very important, then, that that message be consistent with 30 other messages that I've read about. Uh, and otherwise, we're dealing with what is obviously just a hallucination or a series or a collection of hallucinations. But what's wonderful about these these messages is that they are very consistent with each other, so much so that after I've read 30 of them, I know pretty much what the 31st is going to essentially say, and it does. <laughs> there is a kind of consistency in the uh, descriptions of the other side that uh, gives me the sense that we're dealing with reality rather than just a whole series and collection of hallucinations. Right. I know you know Michael Tim. You did a yeah. great interview with Michael. I used yeah, to. Yeah, uh, did you? I'm so glad. Yeah, I, I and he's a to, dear friend of mine. He, he, I, well, he's a, a friend of mine as well. He's been on the show several times. But I used to yeah. kind of dismiss mediums. I mean, I wasn't sure how to take that. I, I, I don't dismiss the possibility of the psychic. At least I didn't. But Michael has done so much research. Uh, yeah that it's it's just impossible to dismiss the credibility of them. And, of course, we've got Schwartz, Gary Schwartz, over at uh, Arizona that's done some yeah. pretty good work himself. So, yeah. uh, all right, let's let's do this. Let me let me go back to uh, Nancy Evan Bush and her health okay. experiences for a moment. All right. Um, she says that there's no discernible relation to what kind of life a person has lived as to where they go, as to whether they go to hell or, or not. Uh, being a good person, going to church, no guarantee that you're going, you know, not to have a terrible car accident and then find yourself in hell. Right. In her words, what we think uh-huh. people deserve has nothing to do with whether they have a glorious experience or a terrible one, close quote. Now, uh-huh. you know, there are some Christians, and I know you know this, they're not Catholics, but there are some Christians that believe that you're saved purely by the grace of God that you cannot do anything to earn salvation per se, period. Uh And this statement by Bush seems to support that idea. Do you you find evidence for that with your mediums and other work, Professor? Absolutely. I'm just astonished that someone who knows the literature that I've been exposed to and have studied for much of my life would come to such a conclusion. I come to just exactly the opposite conclusion, um, that... We are very much um, uh, that that our character uh, that that our character takes us into an appropriate sphere or sector in the afterworld. Uh, you're not going to find Hitler, you know, up in the light, um, and you're not going to find Mother Teresa down in the dungeons. It just doesn't happen that way. So, I think what she may be saying, I hope this is the point that she's making, is that um, the 
the resultant of all of your life decisions and the habits that, you, that you've built into your character uh, is not dependent on whether or not you go to church. It's not dependent on what you believe. Um, that has very little relation to the kind or the state of happiness or unhappiness in the in the world to come. What makes all the difference is simply the habits of mind, uh, the the character. I call it one's character, and it's one's character that will determine what kind of a state you find yourself in. And I wish, that you, a character, I wish can, a good character, she... can be atheistic, by the way. But uh, so I, I don't know where she's coming from with that. I, I could cite any number of uh, just tons of quotes that, that say just the opposite. All of my sources would would deny that. Yeah, and I wish I could agree that as I read her, that that's her take. But her take really is, uh-huh. no, you you know, you could end up there like it's a four done deal before before you even live. So now you wow. you said something. I'm going to have to, yeah, and we're just so short of time. So we got another break coming, but I'm going to tease <laughs> you with this one. Okay, all right. Give you plenty of time to think about it. All right. Within the New Age movement, there are all kinds of uh, ideas, tenets, if you will. But uh, if you didn't hear it, uh, two weeks ago we had a, a person on the show who essentially put forward the idea that, and this isn't novel, this is a pretty standard message, okay. that we make deals on the other side. So... You know, if you need to learn forgiveness, somebody needs to come in and be the bad guy to teach you forgiveness, you know? So, you know, with Adolf, all he did was agree with a bunch of us that, you know, look, during that incarnation, I'll be an evil SOB, and you can all learn forgiveness as a result. And, of course, you know, once we cross back over, we all give Adolf a big hearty hug and say, Uh, you know, hey, thanks a bunch. That was just a wonderful experience and (laughs) and on and on. You you know, there are popular books, um, Little Soul in the Sun, uh, uh, Neil Donald Walsh, that that just insist that this is how the universe works. So, Professor, when we come back, I would like to know, is that true based on what you know what your okay. research has shown or not <laughs> on that one right. i'm hanging on the cliff if i will think about would, that elder uh, yeah i'll bet you don't have to think long if you would like to know more about professor betty and his work check out the google links or just go to provocativeenlightenment.com and use the links posted there uh, we couldn't find a short clip of the professor for today, so we chose a clip that supposedly represents a real sense of hell. You can check it out by joining the chat room. We'll play that video for you at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. The book, again, and it's a great read, Heaven and Hell Unveiled, Updates from the World of Spirit. Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. It's not your fault until you know better. Self-defeating, self-sabotaging thoughts can be eliminated. It may be difficult to accept, but the fact is magnetic resonance imaging shows us that your subconscious mind makes almost all of your decisions, while your conscious mind makes up reasons to explain your choices. In order to rid yourself of those self-defeating thoughts and ideas, the fear and doubt that can hold you back, you must change the way you talk to yourself. 
Nothing does this faster or better than our patented InterTalk technology. Scientifically proven effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies, InterTalk has repeatedly been demonstrated effective. Change has never been easier. Now you can improve your life almost automatically by rewriting the scripts hidden away in your subconscious. Guaranteed to work. No reason to wait. So don't delay. Go to intertalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Professor Stafford Beatty about life after death in his book, Heaven and Hell Unveiled. Now, Professor Beatty, we just played your second musical choice, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, singing the German selection. I'm a bendedrop. Uh, my German is not really good. Translated, that's At Sunset by Richard Strauss and performed together with the London Symphony Orchestra. So tell us. Do you do you speak German, and why is this music meaningful to you? And uh, uh, it, it means a great deal to me simply because of its intrinsic beauty. Uh, secondly, because that particular piece, um, it's the last of his four last songs. He wrote it when he was 87 years old. I don't know of any composer that wrote so late into his life, so so radiantly, so beautifully, as Richard Strauss did. 
uh, it is the uh, it is the way he tries to evoke the very moment of death, and uh, it's it's just an extraordinary eight minute um, segment uh, of of some of the most beautiful music that's ever been done in my in my view. Any case, it's, so it's about death, and I thought it would be uh, it would be relevant to what we're talking about, Elvin. Right. So did you? I mean, you have the lyrics in English. You know exactly what yeah. these lyrics are. Yeah, okay, I do. Okay, cool. So all right, all right. That let me, before the break, I gave you the cliffhanger. Yep. So the That's Neil Donald one. Walsh's in the world. Uh, have they got it right? I mean, they had conversations with God. Did did they right. told the straight stuff? I don't think so. I've never had any respect for conversations with God. I can tell you that right now. I hope I don't lose some of your listeners on that. And I feel that way because what he is saying strikes me as very uh, different from what the spirits themselves are telling me. I think anyone who claims to have a conversation with God is deluded. Um, I think that the best we can hope for is for a medium to make her mind available to not God, but to a spirit on the other side, uh, a spirit, you know, more or less at our own level, who t- simply tells us about the world in which he or she is living. And so what I heard you ask me at the end of the previous segment was a bit, uh, I wouldn't say distressing, but it struck me as really almost absurd. Um, it seems to me that we don't have to account for evil in the way that that particular author wants to. It seems to me we can account for it perfectly well with simply free will. And um, if we have free will, we can abuse it, or we can use it well. Uh, it seems to me that um, Islamic State, for example, the members of that are using it very poorly. They believe that they are effecting good in the world. They're not there to bring destruction into the world and make it worse as apparently your previous uh, presenter seemed to imply that there really are spirits who have come to the world to to try to bring us to our senses by, I don't know, having us deal with the evil that they represent. We don't need to do that. We can deal with the evil. We can confront evil just for, in the ordinary way that we find it, by people making mistakes and doing stupid things and needing help to get out of it. Uh, so that's that's what my uh, what my spirit sources are telling us. Okay. Yeah. For example, uh, you know, uh, many souls are enslaved to their addictions, and they become earthbound. Um, for example, an earthbound spirit who was an alcoholic is still pestered by the craving for alcohol. He doesn't. He's not relieved from his alcoholic addiction just because he dies. He carries it with him. So what does he do? He hangs around bars on earth and drinks through other alcoholics that he temporarily uh, possesses, um, making it all the more difficult for his victim to conquer the uh, the habit. So th- this is this is the way uh, I think it works, and this is the way the spirits are telling me it works. Plenty of evil out I there. I wake up on the other side, I'm going to want a cup of coffee first thing. <laughs> you might. It depends on how addicted to it you are. <laughs> Uh, yeah, really. You, you will. Be, your personality, your needs will be absolutely intact. They will begin to change rapidly uh, once you uh, acclimate yourself to conditions on the other side. You won't be missing coffee for long. All right. You you present several ideas that uh, you know have implicit sides to them. Okay. Uh, the problem of evil, obviously, is is implicit to the last conversation and free will. Yeah. 
And yeah. there are many people that would argue, you know, look, if uh, God created us, and, and I know that you don't believe he did so 7,000, 8,000 years ago, right. that's it. okay. But right. if we were created and created in God's image, um, God could have chosen to create us perfectly, but instead he created us with a deficient will. And because we had a deficient will, well, then, of course, we sin. But then does that mean it's our sin or it's God's sin? You know, uh, and, and I know you're familiar with these kinds of... Oh, yeah, of all the time. But, uh, yeah. but that's not really my question. My, my, okay. my question really goes to this. Um, free will uh, does account for a lot of... Um, behavior that we would identify as evil. Mm-hmm. But th- there also seems to be something that you could just call evil that, that underlies that. In, you know, biblical literature, uh, for that matter, literature of the Far East, uh, there, there are tempters, there are evil spirits. Yeah. Yeah, now, there are there some are. that say evil spirits are just human beings who've gone through an incarnation and done something terrible and yeah. they are earthbound they're trapped they're you know they're murderers they're this they're that but there mm-hmm. are also arguments that no you know there is an evil even beyond that an original yeah. evil spirit where are you uh, with regard to this based on your work and research professor yeah um i i um uh want to make a distinction between those earthbound spirits and there are zillions of those hanging around earth if my spirit sources are correct uh-huh. they are thrilled by the poison of hatred that they find in us who are embodied and they hang around and they they might even try to exacerbate the hatred and make it even worse than it is because they simply enjoy that uh, they are very deformed spiritually and on the other hand, they are not the kind of spirits that you just described. Those are the spirits that uh, are truly out to do us in. And um, they are relatively rare. And, and, and by that I mean that there, for every one of them, there are a thousand of these earthbound spirits who end up doing damage, not because they will us to, not because they will us harm, but because they want to use us and they do us harm uh, just uh, on the side, without really wanting to do us harm, they do it. They're mischievous, and they get in our way, and they hurt us, but not intentionally. There are others who really thrive uh, on bringing havoc into our world. These are the real demonic spirits who uh, who, who are, are sometimes mentioned in the literature that uh, I value so highly as waging a kind of war against the good spirits, uh, the heavenly spirits, who are at sometimes we're called upon to do battle or to, uh, or to undo some of the harm that they actually inflict upon us. So, yes, I, I think that there is uh, just too much evidence to deny the reality of this kind of demonic personality. Now, I'm not talking about some sort of a Satan, some sort of a being who fell from heaven zillions of years ago who used to be called Lucifer. I'm not talking about that. And I'm not talking about a spirit with a forked tail either. I'm talking about a spirit who perhaps thousands of years ago or maybe just a few hundred years ago uh, had an earth experience, uh, fell into evil habits, and basically never has tried to get beyond those evil habits, has never repented once getting to the other side, and has instead 
developed the evil that was begun back on Earth. And uh, that that has resulted in uh, a powerful demonic sort of being who um, who can will us mischief and does us intentionally quite a bit of mischief. Yes, that kind of being is mentioned consistently in the literature. Right, the, the Beelzebub or the Lucifer. But let me ask you this: yeah. uh, Do you? I mean, one of one of the takeaways here might be this. Is is good good, or was good created? Because if good, as we define good, is a aspect of creation, then as the Tao might imply, is it also not necessary that bad was the an aspect of that same creation? Um, I I think that um, that the free will defense makes, or at least attempts to make sense of that question, and I think it works. Um, I would put it this way. <clears throat> now, keep in mind, when I say God, I'm not thinking of, of God sitting uh, up in heaven on a throne with Jesus at his right hand. Uh, nothing like that. Nothing, nothing very simple or corny like that. I'm talking about the master of the universe. I'm not talking about the being who created uh, human beings um, uh, a few thousand years ago, but the being behind the Big Bang uh, and behind the evolution uh, of species who set the whole thing in motion. And has you might say watched it unfold. So the unmoved mover. Yeah, if you will. I think that, however, God loves His creation. That is, uh, and uh, you might say that is one of the few acts of faith that I'm capable of making. Almost all of my theology is based on the kind of evidence that I'm sharing in my books. But that is something I really want to believe and need to believe, and I find so many hints of it in the afterlife literature that. I find it easy to believe at long last, easy to believe that. So what God has done, as I see it, is to value his creature, value creatures like us, value human beings like us, to such an extent that he's going to give us the precious, the very precious um, gift of freedom, of free will. Um, and it is only by using this freedom well that we become worthy of our best selves. Prior to that, we're, we're interesting, but we're not lovable. What makes us lovable is the great things that we decide to do when we use our free will well. Uh, and that's what God values in us. It's what we value in each other, and it's what we value in ourselves. Without freedom, uh, we cannot evolve into lovable beings. We cannot evolve into beings of great stature beings whom we admire. Free will is essential. However, it has a dark side. And of course, you know what that is. We can abuse it. But I think that the Creator feels that, you know, yeah, He knows in advance that half of the creation is going to go awry, the other half is going to go in the right direction. But given enough time, hopefully we can bring that other half back into sanity. Uh, and uh, who knows, maybe in the long run, all of us will rejoice in some kind of heavenly, very advanced, evolved sort of afterlife experience. That would be my hope. I don't think that anyone is ever lost permanently. I think that there are too many accounts of missionary spirits who are willing to descend into these dark sectors of the afterlife and try to convert them into loving beings. That in 
that, of course, in, uh, requires them to confront their evil and to repent it and, uh, and to admit it humbly. Yes, I screwed up badly. Now, let's get back on the right track. So I think right. that, that, uh, that, that in the long run, good will triumph, even though uh, good takes its meaning partly from the evil that is opposed to it, which is, of course, a side effect of the abuse of free will. So that's the way I see it. You know, that's uh, that's kind of consistent with the Buddhist belief that you can yeah. work your way out of uh, yeah, hell, it is, uh, as opposed to uh, the belief of Islam or the belief of uh, yeah, uh, Judeo. That's right. Now, you're right about that. Not only that, but Hindus Hindus also reject anything like a permanent hell. Right. They believe in hell. Oh, yes, they do. They describe it graphically. But it's there only as long as your negative karma keeps you there. Then right. you keep getting more and more chances. I like that. And it, it uh, is implied in a number of places in the literature that I study. It's sort of, I mean, you know, does that predispose one to accept the idea of reincarnation? Uh, yeah. Where are you on that? Uh, yeah, I think, it, I think it does, Eldon. And... Uh, uh, I, uh, I would, I would say this, that, that in the last, oh, I don't know, hundred years or so, most of the accounts that, um, that I honor and that, uh, go into the afterlife experience in great detail do speak of reincarnation. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of them actually see it as a kind of a centerpiece, uh, that makes sense of the entire spiritual evolution that we undergo. So I do believe in it. Now, I should tell you that it really doesn't have any impact on the way I live my life. It's sort of an intellectual belief. seems to me the evidence is there. Uh, Ian Stevenson has presented a lot of evidence working with the memories of little children who remember previous lives. So I've been convinced uh, by the evidence that uh, reincarnation is a likelihood, uh, a high probability. Um, and yes, so I think that basically those Buddhists and Hindus have stumbled into a truth that is rather surprising, uh, given that it started to show itself, you know, so long ago, like 3,000 years ago. Well, there, there are scholars, and I know you, you, uh, you're a biblical scholar. Uh, there uh, are scholars, biblical scholars, that point yeah. out that, uh, yeah. you know, the Bible was essentially... Well, all of the the books that might have been controversial, including the uh, references to uh, reincarnation, were destroyed, burned during the Third Ecumenical yep. Council. So, yeah, um, but there yep. still seems to be some references that leak through. So I'm with you. I, I think, to me, it seems to be the compensation mechanism or the built-in safety valve. However, you want to see it, no matter how yep. bad you are. Right. Uh, no matter how much you mess up, um, right. you know, you're going to have the opportunity to correct it. Um, Absolutely. I, I think that makes wonderful sense. I'm, I'm glad you feel that way, Eldon. I, I, I concur with you. It seems to me that the reason that we need to die uh, is to be given a fresh choice. So many of us are on a terrible track that we need to die and be given a start over. Now, when we come back for another try, we, of course, carry our character with us. That's not obliterated. We carry our character with us, but at least we're born into new circumstances um, and are given a fresh start. Uh, and, and I think that's why you might say the Creator invented death 
uh, and many times dying, many times beginning again. It's essential that uh, we be given that uh, fresh uh, opportunity for further growth. Otherwise, we would just be utterly overwhelmed by the memories of the mistakes we've made in a life that goes on for thousands and thousands of years with never a respite. <laughs> and uh, so we need to die and we need to be born again for fresh starts. That's the way I see it. I think that's the way the universe operates. And it sounds very rational and it is consistent with what you what you do find yeah. when you're working with the evidence, as you say, that we do exist. So, But what it does do is it demolishes a couple of ideas, caveats, if you will, well, not even caveat, fundamental principles inherent to a lot of Christian belief. For example, reincarnation presupposes this whole notion of resurrection is well, no such yeah. thing. And, right. you know, uh, if, if I... If I study the New Testament, I discover that no one goes to hell until after resurrection, because that's the yeah. judgment day. That's when we're going to yeah. learn the good from the bad. So yeah. it really, you know, it challenges the Bible very directly. And then, of course, we have, you know, the skeptics who are going to say, well, you're just kind of cherry picking a uh, a philosophy here that sounds mm -hmm. good and feels good, doesn't it? I mean, you're, you you took this part, you want to believe this, but you're not taking this part. What say you to that, Professor? Well, first of all, um, <clears throat> I've looked at dozens of uh, sources uh, coming from the other world, and I think that um, those sources are closer to the source, to the ultimate source, than we have any access to. I tend to find the literature about the meaning of life here, there, and our ultimate future far more uh, impressive, revealing, more exciting, um, just more inspiring than anything I find in earth religions. Earth religions are, it seems to me, simply falling short of what we can get from the spirits who are closer to the source simply because we're farther away from the source. We have to work through our dense physical brains and they deter us from getting as far as we would if we were, you might say, incarcerated in bodies that are lighter, brains that are less dense, as the spirit world uh, provides. So I find plenty of evidence for what uh, I am saying. Uh, uh, now, I don't think that this is a matter of cherry-picking at all. You just turn it, you find it everywhere in this literature. So reincarnation? strikes me as just, uh, as I say, a high probability. Okay, now some of the research in reincarnation, and we've had guests on this show, and, and they've dealt with mediums, and they've okay. used hypnosis, and da-da-da. Some yeah. of them say, you know, you can reincarnate in a different planet and under as an underwater animal like a dolphin, or, you know, <laughs> you can reincarnate. Uh, you, you can come back as a bee, you can come back as, you know, my, my dog or my cat. Uh, <laughs> right. There, you know, transmigration as the Sikhs would have sure. it. You can go through yeah. literally every single life form there is. What say you? Yeah, I would say first of all, all of that is feasible. Um, it's it's. I, let's put it this way: I don't think it's plausible, but I think it's possible. I don't find that kind of uh, exposition uh, in the uh, afterlife literature that I study. It simply isn't there. Um, 
there are many indications that there are uh, animals uh, in the next world. Our pets will survive. We will find them waiting for us if we are close to them. That's part of the reward of the next world. But you don't find evidence uh, of transmigration. You don't find any evidence of that even in the wonderful liter- uh, even in the wonderful studies by Ian Stevenson, who investigates the memories of these little children. Right. Thousands of cases. None of these kids talks about you know being a dog in a previous life. <laughs> they all remember being a human being in the previous life. So it seems to me that the research takes uh, takes us very much in a different direction from what I regard as these reckless claims by people who are just delighting in all kinds of possibilities because maybe they just want to feel free to think whatever they want to think. But I'm very, very uh, attached to what the research tells me and what's the, what is the evidence actually prov- uh, providing us. And I don't find that kind of wild speculative quality that you just mentioned in the research that I do. All right, well, it's much more orderly, much more rational. Got another break coming up. You know, I find right. the entire aspect of the, the, the study of metaphysics to be the most exciting thing a person can do with their life. And that's what we're talking about. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope you're enjoying the show with Professor Stafford Betty. The books we're discussing again are Heaven and Hell Unveiled and Toward the Light, Religion in the Afterlife. Two important reads. Okay, we'll be right back after paying some bills. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Hi, I'm Elton Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show.
And welcome back. We hope you're enjoying the show. We're speaking with Professor Stafford Betty about life after death in his books, Heaven and Hell Unveiled and Toward the Light, Religion in the Afterlife. In this half hour, we will take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions through our chat room. Now, Professor, we just played I Sing a Song of the Saints of God. And since you didn't have a preference as to the performer, I chose to use a version sung by 11-year-old Rachel. She's just joking. nice. This way, the you know, we, we, we can hear the words clearly. We don't have the organ accompaniment kind of crowding them out. That's so fun. listen, why this song? Why this song? Because I think that what we're all called to be uh, is a saint. And I don't mean a soupy saint, but a person of noble character who is a positive force in the world, uh, who is willing to work not exclusively for one's own ego satisfaction, but for the good of the ones around us whom we influence. It seems to me that that's what our calling is, and that's what I mean by becoming a saint. This little tune, this little song, is in the Anglican hymnal, and it's always struck me as a beautiful thing because of its simplicity, because of its childlike character. Actually, it was written by a woman for her children, and uh, so it has this simple childlike charm that uh, I think uh, hits the mark uh, right on target. And that is why I chose a child to sing this song. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, you lead me to a story, though, because, I mean, a question, because there's a story in the song. And and so let me let me just ask you this. There are a number of Christian ideas about hell. Um, but primarily, you know... God's going to judge us because we have failed to accept Jesus as our Savior. Right. Uh, you know, so I think it's Romans it says. I'm sure it's Romans. Romans 3 and 23. I've got it right here. Okay. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. So if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you go to hell? No, uh, not at all. Um, most of the uh, accounts that have reached us down through the ages, particularly the great ones uh, that uh, uh, reached us oh, anywhere from 130 to perhaps 50 years ago, have come to us from beings, from spirits who were Christian uh, in their lifetime on earth. So you might expect, oh, well, we're going to get the conventional Christian take. Not at all. What we are told from these very spirits is that there are no rigid creeds or magical beliefs that souls have to accept. Whether you're a Baptist or a Catholic or a Mormon or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an Anglican is of no importance. Many of Earth's favorite religious dogmas are off the mark anyway, and the sooner they are forgotten, the better. Experience in the afterworld will generate as a matter of course a more enlightened set of beliefs. 
that will better reflect the way things really are uh, than any of Earth's primitive theologies, which are more often than not the inventions of men rather than revelations from higher spheres. That is a good summary of what the spirits are telling us about our own theologies, about our own take on heaven and hell. That's why my book is titled Heaven and Hell Unveiled Updates from the World of Spirit. We need to have our religion updated from a higher source. So I'm not at all troubled by these relatively primitive theologies that uh, are basically there to scare us into good behavior. Okay, you know, there are a lot of people, myself included, who, who mm. look at organized religion and see that they have really become more like a private club. You know, look, uh-huh. I have the exclusive truth, and if you don't come through uh-huh. me, or you don't do it right. my way. And, right. and this exclusivity, I believe, is is part of the problem that has given rise to so many people becoming... You know, disenchanted with religion and moving away. You're absolutely from organized right. Religion. Yep. You, you go ahead, flesh that out. Then totally how, agree with you. How, um, how do we update religion? How do we update? Yeah. I mean, how do we practice spirituality without going to a church? You know, give us your view. Yeah. On that. Yeah. Oh, I'm just totally with you. These questions are tremendously important to me, as you probably know. The um, the polls that uh, people are filling out these days uh, indicating their religious preference. The nuns are taking over. Huge numbers right. of young people are simply checking off none or no religion at all. Right. And um, I think the reason for this is that the kind of schooling that they're getting uh, from, at least from, uh, shall we say, middle school on up, uh, goes in the face of any kind of exclusivity. They are being told over and over again to become sensitive to people of other cultures, um, and 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 to to that that message is drunk in, is imbibed, and it just gives the lie to any kind of religious upbringing that their parents may be trying to force off on them. That is to say, that there is only one truth, only one salvation, only one savior. That doesn't fix. That doesn't. That simply doesn't square with the kind of education that our young people are getting in the schools, in the public schools. I think that's one of the main reasons. Uh, that just strikes them as a big, a big lie. Let me ask you this, though. I mean, we do have, we, we have like uh, Richard Dawkins and Michael Shermer, and, you yep. know, Dawkins is really quick to get out there and just beat up the obvious. You know, how can right. you have a God that's all powerful? Right. Uh, if he's all powerful, can he build a rock so large he can't lift it? And when yep. you're looking at these younger people, and they and they see the self contradiction in so much of this this literature, and then you you hear about this anthropomorphic deity, and we have these you know yeah. you, you yeah. already you mentioned that one. Uh, I think that 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 combines to lead young people into believing that what we're dealing with is some kind of outdated. Um, Mythology that really is not much more than black cat superstition. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, at, at the same time, I have to be fair. Michael Shermer was on this show, 
Okay. And at one time, he was um, a born-again Christian going door-to-door, proselytizing, uh-huh. uh, absolutely convinced that that was, that was his duty in life. And then he himself became disenchanted for the very reasons that I'm telling you about now, yep, sure. combined with his academic experience and the emphasis there on a mechanistic world, and I know you hear about that plenty, yeah. Uh, but in the bottom line, I asked Michael, uh, would you be doing anything differently today had you remained a good Christian since uh, what you're telling me is you prioritize service to your family, your uh, neighborhood, your community, um, your nation, the country as the meaning of your life, service. And he said to me, no, I guess I wouldn't. So in the bottom line, aren't you really saying that it's how we live our life, it's the service that we bring to life, not the endowment that comes because we belong to a club or we hold the Koran up or we hold the Gita yeah. up or we hold the Bible up, etc.? Yeah, no, I, I quite agree that service is the key to a good life, and it is a key, the key, the main key to a happy experience in the world to come. Um, in the world to come, not only will we be rewarded by our service in this world, but we will be expected to perform even greater service in the other world, in the world to come. And there are zillions of ways to do that, and the literature is full of it, and it's one of the things I write about in my book, in the service chapter. So... Um, but I would say this, that Shermer, is, he, his life as a servant may be no different. But I, uh, I think that his expectation of extinction is scary and casts a gloom over life uh, when he finally gets around to thinking about death. Not just his own death, but the death of his children, if that uh, should happen. Mm-hmm. That gloom grows out of a gloomy metaphysics, and that's a metaphysics that he ascribes to, the metaphysics of materialism, the metaphysics of, uh, of, uh, of, of extinction at death. That's not something that, that the world really is nourished by. We need to be able to provide consolation to survivors. Um, and uh, you see them at afterlife conferences, you know, parents whose children have died or committed suicide, they're desperate for consolation. They desperately want to know their loved ones have continued to survive and that they are available to them, that they can be consulted, that they can be prayed for, that they can be visited. Uh, these, these, these are very important uh, things that Shermer simply doesn't adequately honor, in, in, my, in my opinion. Well, I also know, think that... Two thoughts that I have, Professor. Sure. The first one is, of course, you know, we have famous people like Christopher Hitchens and Sigmund Freud yep. who go as devout atheists. Yep. Um, and, you know, they're, they're quite comfortable. I mean, but they're dying. They're also not, you know, dealing with the death of a child. Right. But, but, you know, there is this idea that if you're leading people away, how can that be service? Is there, in your view, a karmic consequence to misinformation, disinformation? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. a karmic consequence to, hey, yeah. you know, the bad guy is just really a good guy. 
doing a bad thing by agreement and or hey look don't don't believe any of this god stuff afterlife stuff that's all nonsense and superstition yeah. is there a consequence to that i think there is uh, i think that um, the consequence will be felt uh, painfully uh once one like a Christopher Hitchens uh, or a Michael Shermer, once they die and they realize, oh, my God, I'm alive. This is not supposed to happen. And I don't know what they will feel. I don't know if they'll feel more relief or just embarrassment for having gotten it so wrong and for having misled so many people. My suspicion, though, is that it'll be a mixture of both and that the karmic consequence will be that they feel deep regret for the people whom they have misled who have not profited from their instruction, who perhaps have been led to the sense that life is meaningless uh, and and then therefore suicide becomes a real option and becomes a real choice in so many cases. I think that there will be a haunting feeling of having missed the mark uh, by people like Shermer. Uh, I don't wish them ill, don't get me wrong, but I can imagine that if I were Shermer and <laughs> awakened to a life in the light in the next world, I would be very, very uh, concerned about the damage that I had done. In any case, I think to Michael, yeah. he uh, he does say he's an agnostic because he recognizes you can neither prove or disprove God. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah. but you you have a you have a point there, and 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 I, that's why I question it. Let me ask you. I mean, we're going running short time, and I'm going to have to turn and you know get away from my selfish questions and okay. take a look at what we have in the chat room quickly. But, sure. you know, some religions practice work for the dead. You mentioned Mormonism. Uh, they yeah. do a lot of uh, work for the dead. Uh, theoretically, it's designed to introduce concepts uh, that are Christian in nature, you know, like yeah. bring Jesus to you so you can accept him as a Savior before Judgment Day. But there are other practices from other faiths and Native American traditions or mm-hmm. uh, Inuit uh, traditions where you're praying for people as they pass so they wake up, uh, they become more aware, uh, and you're familiar with all of that. Gods, based on what the mediums are, are telling you, does this work by the living on behalf of the dead, does it have any merit, any value? Absolutely, it does. Um, the, the, the deceased are constantly telling us that they look forward to hearing from us, that loneliness is, a, is, a, is, a, is an experience that some of, them, uh, some of them undergo. They like to be remembered by their surviving loved ones. They like for us to visit their grave sites and to pray for them. It's a way they uh, keep in contact with us, whom they have not forgotten, and whom they want to feel the love from. So not only do we benefit them by our prayers, but they also can benefit us by their, you might say, telepathic instructions and little hints that they give us when we're in trouble. Some people think of this as angelic. But it's probably just, you know, our guardian spirits, perhaps even uh, uh, deceased grandparents who are who are con- who are are staying in contact with us, who who are looking after us. So it goes both ways. Prayer goes in both directions. There is a there is a window, an opening between our world and theirs, and I have the deepest respect for that. And I must say, I pray for my deceased mother and father and my grandparents on a fairly regular basis because I know that they want to be remembered. 
by their loving son or grandson. All right. Okay, let me jump to the questions coming out of the chat room. Mark would like to know, does Professor Betty believe in fallen angels, as the Bible mentions, and if so, where do they reside? No, I don't. Um, I think that's a that's a myth. Uh, I think that that uh, that that evil is uh, uh, that comes from, as I say, it comes from the abuse of free will uh, by people who are on the earth plane or some physical plane, and that um, the so-called angels of death or the evil angels uh, have all been incarnated before, and uh, they have learned their habits uh, through uh, their experiences on earth and carried them forth. In the other world, and and uh, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, some of them actually are in the business of uh, of doing damage to us back here. Uh, so that's my own sense of it, and I get that sense from reading the literature, not from reading some scripture that was created by men, uh, you know, two thousand years ago. Right. And now, you know, I'm reading from your book right now because I think it's relative to what you just said. This is page okay. 141 of uh, Heaven and Hell Unveiled. Okay. Uh, Imperator says, quote, praise, which attunes the soul to God and prayer, which moves the spirit agencies. These are engines ever ready to man's service. But yeah. we must actively seek this help. Seek it in the same way we would seek help on earth from our friends or family. And if we don't, then we are likely to be left to our own devices. If yeah. our spirit friends are correct, then our religions, for the most part, greatly underestimate the power of evil around us and the help available from the spirit friends to vanquish it. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. How how would you suggest someone calls upon this power to, as Jesus did, I mean, he cast the demons out. Uh, Are we just supposed to say, you know, get thee behind me, Satan? Or, you know, uh, how would you, what would you tell your class is a good way to keep evil in abeyance and away? There's no better way than very deep, concentrated, utterly sincere, fervent prayer for help. Uh, You can address this to God. You can address it to uh, a saint. You can address it to a grandmother whom you knew to be a person who loved you and was saintly in her own way. As long as you go very, very deep, and this is very hard for a person to do who is being driven by terrible habits. I'm in contact with a person like this right now. It's, you know, it's one thing to talk about becoming very deep and still and quiet and sincere, but it's almost impossible for a person who's so far along uh, uh, in, in, in the practice of and, and the habit of doing evil. It's almost impossible for that person to be able to do that in this lifetime. It's like they have to die first and then get another chance and try again. But that's the best way. It's the only way I know of uh, that that will surely work. Now, you can of course seek um, uh, you can you can seek help from your church or from uh, anyone whom you regard as capable of, like Jesus, uh, casting out the demons from your own breast. However, there are not many people I would trust to be able to do that for me. But there are people like that, apparently, uh, and these are gifted individuals. I don't know any in Bakersfield that I could turn to. I wish I did, but uh, 
That's a possibility. There's no doubt about that. There are some people who have had this. There are these master spirits, and Jesus is one of them. There have been many of them that I've read about in China and India, not just in the Christian traditions, who are capable of casting out what we call demons. All right. So that's one way to go. I have so many more questions. We should have a four-hour show. But I have loved we, this, we by have the way. About, we have about one minute, and I want to make sure that you tell everybody how they can learn more about you and get your book. So okay. tell us all about your website, your activities, etc. Well, the, the, the way to get my book is the way I tell my students or my friends or anyone is simply to go to Amazon.com and, and just type in Stafford Betty. And you'll see that there are three books all about the afterlife. One of them is Heaven and Hell Unveiled, which is what we've been talking about. Another one is The Afterlife Unveiled, an earlier book in 2011. And the other one is a novel, The Imprisoned Splendor, uh, which uh, you might say um, embellishes all of these teachings and, and, uh, and, and puts them, makes them come alive in novel form. So all three of those books written in the last three years are available uh, at Amazon or at my website, um, Stafford Betty. And so I would, I would think that the best way to get the book is to go to Amazon. Just type in my name, you'll find it. Now, so, you have a website, StaffordBetty.com? I, I do. It's, it's actually, um, the best way to, to do it would be to go to a Facebook account and just type in Stafford Betty Books. Okay, great. That's Stafford yeah. Betty Books on right. Facebook. And it's, and it's also, it's B-E-T-T-Y. It's not B-E-A-T-T-Y, but just like a woman's first name, Stafford Betty Books. <laughs> okay. You got <laughs> yeah. it. Stafford Betty Books. All right. right. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank you, Professor, for joining us today. Enjoyed it very much. And I want to thank all of you out there for being with us. I hope you enjoyed our show. And we'll join us again next week, same time, same place. And tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at eldentaylor.com.